Hello, and welcome to Firewell Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewell. Join us for VBS as kids study Psalm 25-4 and discover that God helps us know His ways and teaches us His paths. As kids play their way through the week, they'll learn that Jesus guides them through all the twists and turns of their lives. It's going to be a next-level VBS, but it won't be possible without you. From worship rally to snack and recreation, volunteers like you make the difference. We need you to make twists and turns happen. Find out how to become part of the biggest week in a kid's life and teach them that even when they mess up, it's never game over. Good morning, Firewall. Where is everybody? Come on. Come on in. Everybody get in here. It's time to sing. It's time to sing. As you guys notice, we got lights back. Yay. So that means you guys don't have to use flashlights for your Bibles today. Awesome. So if you'll stand and worship with us this morning.
the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my debt favor go find five people and tell them how much you love them Good morning again, Firewheel. How are you today? Good? 
I'm glad to see all the stragglers have come in from outside. Welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us real fast, and then we're going to keep worshiping God. Is that okay with y'all? All right. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we just thank you for, man, just this time together. God, we thank you for your love. Thank you for your compassion over us daily. Even though we're, we're sinners, you consider us blameless. Uh, we are righteous in your eyes, and that's something that we can thank you for because uh, we don't deserve it. And so, God, help us uh, this morning be in our minds, be in our hearts as we worship you this morning. We are here for one reason, you. Help us to remember that. We love you and we thank you. And all God's people said.
promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. Stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. 
So this next song, you should know it. It's how he loves. I know how much you guys love this song. <laughs> uh, we did it last week, but selfishly, you guys just sounded so good last week. We wanted to do it again. Is that okay? Yeah?
Somebody needs to hear that this morning. Yeah, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Amen. Good morning. Yeah, he loves us, and we can say an amen to that. You know, we gather here on Sunday, and oftentimes I know about me, I need a reminder from time to time, like, why do we gather here together? And there's really only one reason that we gather here together, first and foremost, and that is Jesus Christ. See, what we do when we do communion is we honor him for what he's done for us. And we may ask ourselves, well, why Jesus? Why was he the only one who could pay the penalty for my sin? We read from the Apostle Peter. He tells us that it's but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. See, we serve a holy God, and our holy God sent his sinless son to die for the sins of you and I. Christ was the only one who could ever do that because he's the only one who is without sin. That is the purpose of communion. The Gospel of Mark tells us the following. It says that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. His body, his blood, his sacrifice, our hope, our salvation, our redemption. You see, communion has a very important role to play in the life of a believer. It's a time where we stop and we honor him who paid it all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we honor you, Lord, for you are worthy. You are holy. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his blood. We thank you for his broken body. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins, only possible through the cross. And we rejoice today, Lord, as your children, that we have reason to celebrate that we have been forgiven through the blood and through the broken body of your Son. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that this act of communion, that it would not be just a ritual or a routine exercise, that it, we would stop and we would remember and acknowledge you. For you and you alone are worthy to be praised. Now, I pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Hey, the communion tables are now open.
Good morning, Firewell family. It is good to be with you again on this Lord's Day, this Sunday. Every Sunday we have a joyous and sacred and awesome opportunity to be able to join together as the body of Christ, and we are grateful that you are here today. And those of you who are joining us online, welcome. We are grateful for you as well. So we are going to continue on this week in our sermon series that we are working through the book of James. It has been my encouragement to you as we navigate through this what is a short book which is compacted with lots of different theology and very practical things. I would encourage you to continue to reread the book of James throughout our journey together and just read it at one sitting. It won't even take you very long. So that way you can see the argument that he is building up and all the different things that he addresses. And if you've missed any of the sermons in this series, you can always go back and check them out online. I think that they'll be very fruitful for you and hopefully helpful as well. So last week we tackled a very hard conversation, a difficult conversation, when we talked about discrimination. We saw last week as James addressed, remember he's writing to believers within the church and he was using the example of a rich man who enters into the church and by all accounts he has the gold rings, he has the fine clothes, that this rich man enters into the congregation and then versus a poor man and how they were treated within the context of a gathering of believers together. And so we define discrimination in this way. Discrimination is the practice of treating unfairly a person or group of people differently from others. So discrimination is the practice of treating unfairly a person or group of people differently from others. And that did not... Ooh, okay. It's not going. All right. All right. Y'all tell me when it's... Okay. <laughs> They're working on it. All right, so we looked at the, so when we define discrimination, we saw this between this context of the rich man in comparison to the poor man. Uh, James was bringing out something very important for us. We looked at the difference between what is a judgmental heart and what is a merciful heart. And our one true statement for you last week was this, was discrimination is wrong because it violates God's mandate to love our neighbor. Discrimination is wrong because it violates God's mandate to love our neighbor. So today we're going to talk about what is perhaps the most famous theme in the book of James and the one that you are likely familiar with. We're going to navigate through a very familiar passage of scripture, but I hope that we can unearth a few different insights and think about it from a little bit of a different way today because this is very important for the Christian life. We're going to talk about the relationship between faith and works. This is what James is really known for. If you read the book of James or you think about it, you immediately think about this passage and the passage we're going to talk about next week when he talks about the tongue, okay? But James chapter 2, we're going to find ourselves starting in verse 14 if you want to start navigating your way there. But let me open by giving you a simple illustration. Now, there was an old boatman who painted on the word faith onto one oar of his boats and on the other oar of his boat, he painted on the word works. And he was asked the reason for this. And in answer, he simply, he slipped into, he slipped in the oar that said faith into the water. And he began to row. So he starts rowing. And all of a sudden, the boat, of course, made a very tight circle. Returning to the dock, the boatman then said, now let's try works without faith. So he dunks in the oar that says works, and he starts rowing. And what happens? The boat turns in a tight circle, but in the opposite direction. Again, the boat does the same thing. 
When the boatman again returned to the wharf, he interpreted his experiments to those who asked him the question, basically, what were you doing? And he interpreted it with these convincing words. He said this, you see, to make a passage across the lake, one needs both oars working simultaneously in order to keep the boat in a straight and narrow way. If one does not have the use of both oars, he makes no progress either across the lake nor as a Christian. Faith and works together are a true mark of faith. Because if we do not live out what we say, then do we really believe it truly, even if we say we do? So they have to work in tandem, simultaneously, just like you're rowing a boat. Faith and works together. Here's my one true statement for you today, which is a very sobering reality, but I hope to unpack this, and I have been rehearsing this in my own mind over the last week, is this, a workless faith is a worthless faith. Let me say that again. A workless faith is a worthless faith. I don't think you can have one and not have the other. And I think that's James's point. I think you can't actually separate the two things. So a faith that is not working in that way really is not faith, and it's worthless. So a workless faith is a worthless faith. So as we open up into the scripture today, we're going to find, starting in James chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 14, we're going to see two different things James is going to communicate. And the very first thing he's going to communicate to us is what is the danger for us as believers or um, and people in general if we were to have a faith without works? What is the danger of faith without works? Look at verse 14. And what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? Very interesting question. And I always find it interesting that he puts that right at the very end. Can that faith save him? So James begins by posing two direct questions to the reader, which the reader can only answer it with a negative reply. I mean, is it good to have faith with works, without works? No. Can that faith save him? I think he's implying and he's going to impact this further. No would be the answer to that as well. Now, this section of James has had a lot of ink spilt about it throughout church history uh, and through commentaries and other various different things. He's had a lot of ink spilt about it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate y'all getting that rolling. And there's been a lot of debate on the surface because there's a lot of things that Paul talks about in relationship to faith and salvation. And then you have, coupled with what James says, is some people have suggested that somehow the two contradict one another. Let me tell you a principle about biblical interpretation. The Bible is the best interpreter of the Scripture, and the Scripture never contradicts itself. Okay? So let's just put that out there right now. It's a very good uh, principle of biblical interpretation, okay? So I don't think that it could be further from the truth to say that somehow they're in contention with one another. And it really comes out of one verse in Romans, and we're going to look at that real quick. Romans chapter 4 verse 5 says this, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the question then becomes, James poses the question, can that faith without works truly save somebody? He poses that as a rhetorical question. But then we couple this with what Paul is saying just here in Romans where he says faith is counted as righteousness. Are they saying one and the same thing, two different things? Are they contradicting one another? I don't believe at all. 
If we can say it this way, James and Paul are looking at two sides of the same coin. If one side, head side, is faith, and the other side, tail side, is works, they're two sides of the same coin. To put the matter in different ways, James explains the active side of faith, while Paul is explaining the passive side of faith. Here's what I mean by that. In a sense, they're saying the same thing, even though they're viewing it from two different perspectives. Paul is addressing the Jew in Romans chapter 5. We always have to look at the context. He's addressing the Jew who seeks to obtain salvation by the keeping of the law. So in that case, works does not save that person because they can never work enough according to the law to fulfill all the mandates of the law. So it makes sense then Paul would say, no, Faith is what justifies you and makes you righteous in that way because of the audience in which he is talking to. Paul says, not the works of the law, but faith brings faith in Christ is what brings salvation. By contrast, James is directing his remarks to the person who says he has faith, and he's acknowledging and he's writing to believers, they're saying, hey, we have faith, but they have nothing to show to substantiate what they actually believe. So James is directing it to a different audience. A Jewish audience who's trying to basically live up to the standard of the law and saying that they're saved by doing those works of the law, Paul's audience. James's audience, believers in a church who are basically saying, hey, we have a whole lot of faith, but basically words with no action. So that's why you have this communication in two different ways that really supplements each other, doesn't contradict one another. James accepts his readers' claims to faith. But he does not assume that claim without works representing that faith. The absence of works in a person's life would make their claim highly suspicious, if not outright wrong, if you think about it. Here's a principle for you. Faith that saves is transformational and not informational. Faith that saves is transformational, not informational. If I ask you to raise your hand today, how many of you here who have placed your faith in Jesus say your life has been changed by Jesus? Right? All of you. Do you look a little bit different today? Do you think a little bit different today? Do your actions look a little bit different today than they did before you came to Christ? Do uh, the way that you view the world, is it a little bit different today ever since you came to Jesus? Jesus, when he comes into the life of a person, when the Holy Spirit takes residence within you, he's taking residence within you to change you into the likeness of Christ, that you would look more and more like him. So your life is to change. He doesn't save us to keep us in the manner in which we were. Because if that was the case, he wouldn't need to save us. If you were to stay in the same manner that you were before you came to Jesus, then that means you didn't need him. If nothing else was going to change. But he comes into our life, he changes us, he transforms us. And we start to hopefully look a little bit more like him on a day-to-day -day basis. We start to do things, we start to have a heart like he would have toward other individuals. Do you know that you can believe the right things about Jesus and not be saved? Do you know you could do actions that would actually be aligned, so to speak, with the attitude and the actions of Jesus and still not be saved? One of the most sobering passages in all of the Gospels is when he says, there will be people who cast out demons in my name, who uh, perform healing and miracles, and he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's a sobering reality, isn't it? To think that. Think about it this way. 
If I tell my wife that I love her, and she knows this information, I've declared it to her, I've spoken the words, she knows the information has been transferred to him, but she truly understands only the depth of my love when I correspond my actions to the things in which I communicate. I show my love to her. You show your love to Christ. We express it. It's something active. It's something that is seen. She does not have to only have faith in what I communicate. She sees my actions that are based upon my words toward her that she knows that I actually love her. If I actually told her I loved her and never showed any actions to the affirmative that I actually was trying to show it to her, she would be right to question whether or not I genuinely love her. Sometimes we make things so complicated, ladies and gentlemen. What is in the spiritual corresponds really nicely to the natural sometimes, and that's why the scripture is full of examples and different things. And we can put these two things on in context of a relationship. If you are married and your spouse tells you that they love you, but did actions to the contrary, they slept around, they decided not to come home, they blew the budget, they did all these other things, you would question those. But what about if they just neglected and just did nothing? They said they loved you, but never actually responded to you, never wanted to be around you, never showed any actions toward the affirmative. You would question and would be right to do so whether or not they truly actually love you. James is going to give his own illustration. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they need, needed for the body, what good is that? Here's Pastor Pina's interpretation. Somebody who's poor and needy comes up to you and say, hey, I'll just pray for you. I'll pray for you. That's basically what he's saying. What you're really saying is I'll pray for you so we can stop this conversation and so I can go exit, the, exit into a different direction or so I could go on to the next thing. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here James is bringing up the poor again. Apparently his audience must have really struggled on that front. But what is, it, what is Christ like about not giving somebody food and clothing who comes to you and genuinely have that need? If somebody walked up to you and you were very aware of the fact that they actually had that need and you basically just said, hey, I'll pray for you, or you'll just say, you know, go in peace, you know, God will provide, whatever the case may be, what are you actually physically benefiting them? Nothing. When I read the Gospels, I read Jesus as meeting both the physical and spiritual needs of people. Never separated. You know why? Because people are embodied inside of bodies. So Jesus cares about our body as much as he does our soul. When you read when Jesus fed the masses, when he fed the 5,000, it says he looked upon them and saw they had been traveling and following him along, and he saw that they were hungry. So what did he do? He didn't just say, hey, let me go ahead and pray for you. Hey, keep on following me. I got a good message for you. It's not going to feed your belly, even though you've been with me numerous days and haven't eaten in the desert, and your belly's going to be grumbling and everything, but come on and listen to me. That's okay. No, it says that he stopped, told the disciples to go and to get some food, and then he performed one of his greatest miracles. What did he do? He fed them. He had compassion upon them, he said. He saw that they were hungry and that they were weary, so he met the physical need. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the sheeps and the goats. 
The goats are those who ju are judged. And why are they judged? They're judged because they do not have the fruit of faith that is evident by their actions toward those to which they would express and is expected that they would express godly type action and love toward. Jesus says that those who are sheep, they ask and they said, well, when did we see you naked and clothed you and did all this other stuff? And he says, well, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Their faith was shown in their action and their action toward other individuals showed their heart for Jesus. And he says, those are sheep. The goats are the ones who don't move upon the faith that they say that they have. What's interesting enough is my wife and I were having a conversation about this whole concept of faith and works as we were driving here today, and I was easily reminded of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, the verses we quote all the time. I genuinely believe that salvation is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone, okay? I affirm that wholeheartedly. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay? But what's interesting is in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, when it talks about grace and faith, and it says it's not of works, it's not of ourself, lest any man should boast, the very next verse, in verse 10, the very next verse, after he's just talked about that, he said, but you are God's workmanship created for good works. Literally says you were created for good works that, you would, that he prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. That means you have to exercise them and actually do them. Walk has the idea of putting action to it. So he's saying that you were saved with the intention that you were going to do works that would actually show your salvation to the world and that you would actually express them. And they were prepared before, for you beforehand. Even Paul is not separating those two things and showing the connection between them together. I love verse 17 in the message. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Listen to what it says in the message. It says, isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Let me say that again. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? In reality, it is. And I think we all know that. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, that's good theology. Even the demons believe and shudder, verse 19. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? I love James's example here because if you think about it, demons, fallen angels have a good understanding of theology in many ways, much more greater to some degree than you and I ever will. They were in the actual presence of God. Now they have grossly most misappropriated that theology. However, they believe that God is one. They believe some of those things. And he likens it to saying that if we do not have faith that is shown with works, that we have works that couple with that faith, we have demon faith. That's basically what you have. You have as much faith as demons do. Think about that for a second. <laughs> That's not saying much, nor do I want to be associated with demon faith. I know about you, but last time I checked, I don't want to be associated with demon faith. And that's what he's telling us. They have enough information about God, but they don't act in faith toward God. 
And I believe we have a lot of people that fall into that category. It'd be pretty bold to say, hey, you know what? You got demon faith. But in all sincerity, we have a lot of people who know the information about God, but never act in faith toward God. And to not act in faith toward God, never mind acting in faith as a representative of God toward other individuals, then what they're showing is that, number one, they have grossly immature faith. That's the charitable reading. Or genuinely, I would say they're probably not even saved. That's the real reality of it. The point being simply is that a workless faith is a worthless faith. It's not faith at all. And I think that's the point he's trying to make. Now, James is going to, after he's unpacked this theologically a little bit, he's going to give us a couple examples. Look at the examples he gives us of true faith. Starting in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. Very key statement. You should highlight that. Faith was active along with his works, coupled together. And faith was completed by his works. We'll talk about what that means. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. There's a few questions we have to ask immediately as we unpack these verses. Is the first question that comes to mind is what exactly does he mean when he uses the word justified? What does he mean that Abraham was justified in this context? The word justify, which is used quite often, especially in Paul's writings, when we think about it theologically, most of the time, if you have a theological framework and have heard this term in church, we think about it as a judicial term. Here's what I mean. When it comes to salvation, justification is us being declared in right standing with God. It means that we are declared righteous according to the scripture. It's like a judge, you being before a judge, him smacking the gavel and saying that you've been acquitted and that the case has been dismissed against you. It's a judicial term, okay? It's a legal term in that way. So it's God making a declaration saying that we have gone from the realm of being sinner enemy and all that other stuff to now being children adopted and we are justified and put into a right standing relationship with God. The sin problem has been dealt with in terms of our debt because of our sin debt. Now sometimes the word justify, like in many different English cases, we have terms that have multiple meanings, right? We have terms in our language, just like they did in Greek, just like they did in Hebrew, that have multiple meanings, that, are, that their meanings are based upon the context. And actually, the word justify here, the better way to understand it, means to demonstrate to be righteous or right. It's an active demonstration of the legal declaration that has actually happened. That's why I like this translation when it basically says that his faith, that he was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac. And then when you get the picture, that it was completed in that sense along with his works. So that means that Abraham demonstrated he was righteous. In this sense, James would be claiming that the righteousness that Abraham obtained by God by faith, Genesis 15, 6, was demonstrated openly by his obedience to God and his willingness to sacrifice his son. Please hear what I'm saying. That's really important. He's not saying that 
Abraham was justified by the actual act itself. What he was saying is that Abraham, as a justified person, lived out that justification in showing it by faith, by his willingness to sacrifice his son. And his willingness to sacrifice his son made it abundantly clear that his faith was genuinely active, saving faith was active in his life. A faith that made him righteous before God. Look at verse 22. What does this say about Abraham's faith? It says two things about Abraham's faith. Number one, it says that his faith and actions work together. His faith is what prompted his obedience. Do you think that a man who did not have saving faith would be willing to take his son and lay him on an altar to potentially sacrifice his son? I'd say he had some pretty bold, audacious kind of faith to believe God. And even if you read that story, one of the beautiful things is he says that Abraham even believed that God could resurrect his son. We don't read about resurrection at any point in the scripture to that point. And yet Abraham believed enough about God to believe that his son could be raised by that God. But it also tells us that his faith was made complete by his works. That means it was brought to full maturity. See, I fully believe this, that as we mature in our faith, our works will continue to change and our works will become more aligned with the things that we profess and say we believe. I do things in my attitude and my, my disposition toward my actions. All of those things have significantly changed since I've become a Christian and as I've matured in my faith. And I believe that the longer you have become a Christian, the longer that you stay walking this walk of faith, the more your works and the more hopefully the fruit of the Spirit is going to be demonstrated in your life. And faith then becomes active and it's visible. It's something that's seen. It's almost tangible in that way. Faith prompts obedience and action. That's the example of it maturing. Look at the next example he gives, verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Same kind of deal. It's the same word, literally, uh, in Greek. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Here is another example. And it could not be more different. As Rahab was a harlot, she was not the father of nations. She was a harlot. But she was still in this sense saved by her faith, which she demonstrated through her actions. You can read much more about her story in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 7. It's just another example. But I want to focus on what it says on verse 26. If you look at what it says in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Remember that God created humanity. He created Adam. He formed him out of the dust of the earth. It says he basically kind of molded him. And then it says that he breathed the life Breathe the breath of life into his lungs. And it says that, light, that Adam became a living soul. He literally became animated at that point. So that which was not alive then became alive once God breathed his spirit into Adam. Whatever that looks like. That's one of those scenes when I get to heaven, I want to see it in 4K. I'm like, God, I want to see what that actually looked like. You forming him and then breathing the breath of life into him and him becoming 
all of a sudden just wakes up, you know? That's got to be pretty cool. And if you think about it, death is when our spirit is separated from our body. That's what happens at death. At death, the physical body then dies because the thing that animates the body, the spirit, then is separated from the physical container, so to speak. And that's what happens at death. That's why we say as believers we are grateful for the hope that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's because our spirit leaves the body to be present with the Lord as this earth suit then ceases to function. It's no longer animated in that way. But a body without a spirit is just as a lifeless corpse. And in the same way, faith without works is also dead. He's making this connection. It's like a corpse that has no life. A person claiming to have faith but lacking works is essentially spiritually as lifeless as a corpse. They are walking dead. That's what they are. Inactive faith. Faith isn't something of the intellect. It isn't something that we just believe as a series of like propositions and statements that we just affirm. Faith isn't just something that's in the head. Faith is something that takes resonance and brings life to the individual. Faith is something that is active in the life of the believer. But an inactive faith that is just nothing more than an intellectual faith is, is useless. It's like a body without a heartbeat. James is making a very clear connection for us today. This message is as relevant as when he spoke the words. Faith isn't something that we just believe and attain our minds toward. Thinking like, I can believe all this stuff about God. Faith is an active daily trust. Faith is something that you do. It's something that you exercise. In that way, it's like exercising a muscle. We grow in faith. How many of y'all have grown in faith? You have more faith today, you would say today, than you did when you first became a believer. Hopefully you're growing in faith. You're growing in trust more toward God. Why? Because you've seen God be faithful. Because you've experienced life and seen him take you through the other side. You believe because you start your theology and your, what you understand about the scripture starts becoming real to you then at that point. It isn't just lip service. And so because of that, your trust begins to grow. And faith is something we do on a daily, it's a daily faith walk. Every day you make the decision to trust God. It's an everyday reality. And when we're not doing that, we are lifeless. The principle is simple if I just say it this way. Faith is active and visible. Faith is active and visible. Let me leave you with one more illustration that we'll summarize and close. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, was once quoted as giving this illustration, and I think it's very applicable. He said, I want you to think for a moment about a tree. A fruit tree specifically. Imagine a tree that has been planted into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root. Whether or not it has fruit on it. The fruit on it, in our case apples, do not give life to the tree. The root provides life to the tree. But if that tree stands in the orchard and when the springtime comes and there is no bud, 
when the summer comes and there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next it stands without bud or blossom, leaf or fruit, you would say that it is dead and you are correct. It is dead. The absence of leaf or fruits prove that the tree is dead. Those who say they have faith but have not works, if he hath life, life must give fruits. If not, fruits, works, if his faith has roots, but if there is no works, then the inference is that he is spiritually dead, and it is certainly a correct one. I think this is why Jesus makes the point in John 15. In John 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Fruit is something visible. It's something that is seen. It shows, it's an indicator. It's like a test. It shows the vitality and health of the thing to which it is growing from. And I will tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, you will know the state of your spiritual life when you start seeing the junk that starts coming out of it. When our lives are healthy and we are connected to God the way that we need to be connected to God, then what happens is that hopefully the fruit of the Spirit starts being evident in our life. We start feeling connected to Him. We know we start trusting Him more. Good stuff is coming out of us. Patience, joy, peace, love, kindness, all of these other different, these start coming out of our lives. When things like bitterness, anger, resentment, all this stuff starts coming out of our life, it's time to inspect the fruit. Something is happening at the root. Now, I'm not saying, and please hear making this connection full circle. James is not making the point that he believes, he's talking to believers. He's assuming their faith. And I would say as believers, there are times when there are good times in our life where the harvest is good. Spiritual fruit is being activated and, proper, and, and being fulfilled in our lives. There are certainly other times when there are not good seasons and when good things are not happening and these anger and all this other kind of stuff starts coming up to the surface. It doesn't mean we're disconnected from the vine. It does mean that something's unhealthy that needs to be rooted out, and that's when Jesus gets to pruning. And he gets to pruning because he wants you to bear not just fruit, but much fruit. Here's the thing. We have to let him prune. Sometimes he's been pricking us, he's been pushing us, and we know that he's been trying to prune some things away, and we continue to actively resist his pruning. Those of you who like to garden know the necessity of being able to prune something so that way it causes a little pain for a little moment, but it produces so much more life. I want you, I want I to produce so much in our spiritual lives, not as a way that we would pat ourselves on the back. That way God would get ultimate glory from your life. That he would prune us. The expectation is that a person who experiences saving faith will bear fruit. In fact, it's a promise by Jesus that not only will we bear fruit, but we will be pruned so that we can bear much fruit. 
Let me summarize for you. So our one true statement this morning was that a workless faith is a worthless faith. I don't believe you can have faith without works. It doesn't mean that we are saved by those works, but it does mean that those works are a clear indicator of the things which God prepared beforehand and that Christ's likeness is being produced in and working through our lives. There's a real danger when we have to ask real honest questions when we say we have faith, but we don't have that other side of the coin. And that we can look at examples of true faith like Abraham and Rahab and many others through the scripture to see exactly how their faith coalesced and responded to by their actions and was affirmed by their actions. So here's how we can put this in principle today, in practice. Number one is I would check your faith by your works. Time to have honest inspection. I'm not saying that you are disconnected in the sense of not being saved, but I'm not saying that that's maybe not the case. I don't know all of you personally. I don't know the state of your heart. Only God knows that. I do know that we can believe the right information about God and not be saved. I know we can affirm these certain things and, and still not really have a connected relationship with Jesus. But I also do know that as believers in life, there will be seasons where we're producing fruit and there are other seasons where we need to be pruned so that way we can produce more fruit because some things need to be rooted out of our lives. The second encouragement I'd give to you is to check out examples. James gives you two examples. I love looking at the life of Abraham and he gives you the example of Abraham. If you want to check on Abraham's story and, listen, and read a couple of the things in which he alludes to, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Later on in Genesis, Genesis 24, uh, the story of him and Isaac. But then check out Rahab in Joshua 2 and Joshua 7. And there's many other examples in Scripture that we can look at people and see how their faith was lived out by the things in which they said and that their works are affirmed and affirmed as a representation of their faith. Let's be people who are this corresponds really well and lays over the message that we talked about two weeks ago. At the end of the day, God wants us to be hearers of the word and doers. Those two things cannot be separated. Why? Because doing faith shows really saving faith as an expression of that reality. Lives that have been transformed by Jesus will start to look like Jesus, think like Jesus, act like Jesus. And will show expressions of fruit that show that we have genuinely been transformed by the Savior. Amen? Let's pray. So Lord, we love you. And I thank you, God, that you sent your son Jesus. And as we look to his example, we see throughout the Gospels the, the way in which he had compassion toward people and the things that he encouraged his disciples with. I'm reminded of Matthew 25, the sheeps and the goats. And as he told his disciples who were even unknowing at the time that they expressed their love toward him by the way that they expressed it toward other individuals. Because it was really a showing that their lives had been transformed by the master as they had learned from him. And then exhibited those same actions, those same attitudes toward their fellow man. Holy Spirit, I pray that we would work in partnership with you. I pray that you would root out of our hearts whatever is there that would cause us 
to not produce the fruit that is desired that you would have us to produce. But I do pray that we would yield to the pruning of Jesus as directed by, as Holy Spirit, as you are the one who works it in our hearts, that we would bear much fruit, that we would be hearers of the word and doers as well, not one or the other, and that we would have faith with works to show lives transformed by the master. So Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for the encouragement of your word. It's in Jesus' most precious and holy name, by the Spirit, power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. We're going to have an opportunity to worship. So if we can get you all to stand, we're going to go ahead and engage in worship. This is an opportunity for us to respond to the message and to respond to what God is doing. If there's anything that we can pray for you about, we'd love to have the opportunity to do that. So please give us the opportunity to do that. So let's worship. You give life. You are love. You bring light to the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is
clap of praise. Thank you, Jesus. Y'all may be seated. We're going to worship the Lord through giving at this time. If you're a first-time guest here at Firewheel, welcome. We hope that you feel the love of God expressed uh, through every element of this service, but then also through the people here. We believe that this is a great place, and we thank you that you have chosen to worship with us today. On the screen behind me, there's a QR code if you want to scan that and want to provide information to us just so we can come alongside of you, see where you're at in your spiritual journey, and see how we can serve you and your family. Feel free to do that. Um, no strings attached, but also we have a gift for worshiping with us today. We'd love to, at our Connection Center, as you exit the auditorium, one of our guest services attendants would love just to be able to answer any questions you might have about Firewheel, give you a special gift, no strings attached, uh, and just want to, as a way of honoring you for worshiping with us today. So every Sunday, as an act of our worship, we worship the Lord through giving. Does God need our money? No. But money is a tool for ministry, and God utilizes and uses the body of Christ to be able to essentially work his mission in the earth. And it takes money to do that, to have buildings and to have things in places where we can worship. So we're grateful for the, his generosity, and thank you in advance for your giving. Let me go ahead and pray a blessing over that. So Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to worship through giving. We thank you that you are the source of all things, and that, Lord, you are the one who provides every need, physical, spiritual, but you're the one who provides for us individually and corporately. And so, Lord, we pray that you bless the gift and the giver, and that you would cause it to multiply, and that you allow us to be faithful stewards of all that you have given. In Jesus' name, amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewheel Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewheel. Join us for VBS as kids study Psalm 25-4 and discover that God helps us know His ways and teaches us His paths. As kids play their way through the week, they'll learn that Jesus guides them through all the twists and turns of their lives. It's going to be a next-level VBS, but it won't be possible without you. From worship rally to snack and recreation, volunteers like you make the difference. We need you to make twists and turns happen. Find out how to become part of the biggest week in a kid's life and teach them that even when they mess up, it's never game over. Sunday, June 25th, immediately following the service, there will be an important meeting to give updates to our Firewheel family. There will not be childcare for this event, so all of our attendees can come. Parents plan to bring some snacks and coloring pages for the little ones. Sunday, June 18th, will be a parent-child dedication. If you would like to take part, contact Barbara at firewheelfellowship.com. By the end of the day today, name and picture due by June 13th. For more info on these or any of the events going on around Firewheel, check us out at firewheelfellowship.com slash events, or you'll find us on social media. All right, y'all, if you'll stand, we'll go ahead and pray our benediction, get you dismissed. Next week, we'll pick up right in James chapter 3. We're going from, we're just hitting all the tough subjects right in a row. So <laughs> next week, he talks about the tongue. And so the other really important passage in, in James, and uh, it's going to be an interesting one next week. So uh, looking forward to being able to share that with you. But may the Lord go before you to light the path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. 
May he go above you to protect you, and may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father that is in heaven always grant you character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. We will see you all next week. Mm.